Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of February 30 from Pastor Brett Cottrell. Open up your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. This week as I was preparing this, I came across uh, well, an acquaintance of mine from my high school days. There's no point discussing how long ago that was, it was just a long time ago. He is uh, serving as a pastor in uh, the town I went to high school in, DeSoto, Texas. And uh, he was relating last week a story of an encounter he had at the hospital. I think it was last Sunday, as a matter of fact. He told about an encounter he had. He was there praying with and ministering to a family in his church that uh, had somebody there in the hospital, and it was a serious situation. And they're chatting in the waiting room. He said there was lots of empty seats. And a guy came up to him and just sat down right next to him. You know, you know how awkward that is, you know, when you have all these empty seats and someone chooses to sit right next to you. This gentleman came up and sat right next to, next to him. And he simply said this. Please tell me there's something after this. So a gentleman he's never met before, a gentleman that we'll find out doesn't look anything like him, shows up to him, sits right next to him and says, please tell me there's something after this. This man's mother was dying in a room there just around the corner. This man came holding back tears. I'm just reading my friend's story here. He said, this man came holding back tears distraught from the thought of his mom passing away. From the outside looking in, we had nothing in common. He said, he was a scruffy-looking white guy from Lubbock, Texas. My friend, he says, I I am a black dude in a suit from DeSoto. Two guys who don't look anything alike and come from completely different worlds, so to speak, in different cultures. He told me about his questions of faith, saying he had not come to Christ because he knew he wasn't finished sinning yet. My friend made the comment, he goes, I don't know any of us that are. (laughs) He says, I happen to have my Bible with me, and I walked him through the Scriptures to let him know that Jesus loves him. He asked me to come to see his mom in her room, still a complete stranger to me. On the way, I met his sister. She was also emotional, considering their mom's condition. We returned to the waiting area, and after a few more Bible verses shared, this guy, along with some of our church members, his sister and I, prayed the prayer of salvation right there in the waiting room. He accepted Christ. I asked the guy if he had a Bible. He said he had Google. I took my Bible, one that I had had since a little bit after college graduation, and gave it to him. He initially refused to take it, but I insisted because in it I had some rose petals years and years old, from funeral services for my family members who had passed away. I told him that every time he sees those petals, know that the answer to his original question, is there something after this, is a resounding, blessed assurance that the presence of God awaits all those who, have die, who die having expressed a believing faith in the work of Christ. He took my Bible and asked me to come with him. He escorted me to the nearest bathroom He opened his wallet and went into the hidden compartment, pulled out a package of what looked like heroin, flushed it down the toilet, and said, I'm never going back to that again. 
I have something new. Two men who didn't know each other, who on the outside didn't look anything alike, and yet God set up this appointment. As we come to Mark chapter 7 this morning, we are going to see an encounter that maybe isn't black and white, country, city, but that it is two groups of people who have nothing in common, at least on the outside, and who might not otherwise have anything to do with each other, at least as this world would understand it. Mark chapter 7, we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 24, reading through verse 30. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word this morning. I pray that you would Lord, give us hearts to, to understand what you are doing here, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. But Lord, we would understand what seems to be a difficult conversation. Now, Lord, you would use it to shape us into the image of Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, just as a reminder about where we are and what's going on here, last week we saw that Jesus had a a conversation with some Jewish leaders, some Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, from the capital city, who'd come up to the region of Galilee. And we saw that Jesus had a conversation with these men and his disciples. This conversation was centered around this idea. What is it that makes us pure and righteous before God? These men from Jerusalem, as well-intentioned as they may have been, had the idea that rightness before God, purity before God, had everything to do with everything from how you washed your hands to what rules you kept to what foods you ate. And Jesus spends quite a bit of time with the Pharisees and ultimately even more time with his disciples, those 12 men, saying to them, what is in your heart is more important than what you eat and how you wash your hands. What makes you right before God is not did you wash your hands properly, but is your heart right before Him? He says what pollutes you is not what food you eat, but what pollutes you is that you have a corrupt heart. And so Jesus spent some time with His disciples last week. We see this saying, what makes you unclean before God is not the world out there. It's not rules or lack of rules. What makes you unclean before God is that your heart is corrupted. We understand, too, that as Jesus is talking through all this with his disciples, that they aren't quite getting it. <laughs> they aren't understanding it. 
And so following this conversation he had with his disciples, it says that he got up and went from there to the region of Tyre. Now here's why that makes a difference. The region of Tyre, if you're looking at a map of Israel, and Jesus and his disciples right now are in the area around the Sea of Galilee, the region of Tyre is to the northwest. It's Tyre and Sidon are two cities that are on the coast in what today we would call modern-day Lebanon. And it was an area that was a Gentile area. The Jews didn't live there. And so Jesus has just had this conversation with the disciples and with some of the Jewish leaders about what made you clean and what made you unclean. And to make his point, I think in part, Jesus decides to take his disciples to an area where nothing is clean. I mean, they are in a Gentile area where they can't go into a house, they can't have a meal that, doesn't, that, that, that is, in, is in accordance with Jewish traditions and rituals. So everywhere they look, these disciples are seeing things that are going unclean. I just kind of wonder what they must have been thinking. You kind of wonder if they kind of panic a little bit. <laughs> what are we going to do? What are we going to eat? But Jesus takes them there. Now this area is not just a Gentile area. This, the Bible tells us, Mark, and by the way, there is a parallel account of this event in Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 15 as well to have a better understanding of this event. But the, the Syrophoenicians, this, the, the race of this particular woman that Mark points out for us, Mark points that out for a reason. The Syrophoenicians are essentially, in Jesus' day, the descendants of the original Canaanites. So if you go all the way back in Jewish history to when the people of Israel came into Jericho and came into the promised land, the Canaanites who already lived there, she is a direct descendant of them. A, a people, by the way, that God had told the Israelites to wipe out. They didn't do it. On top of that, the area of Tyre and Sidon, the Syrophoenician lady, is also a descendant of those who, say, in the time of the kings of Israel. Where, this is where Baal worship started. This is where the worship of a goddess by the name of Astarte uh, was centered. This was a center of pagan worship, even in the day of Jesus Christ. It's where Jezebel was from. Y'all remember Jezebel from the Old Testament? This is the area she's from. And on top of all that, just a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus Christ, there was in Jewish history something that's called the Maccabean Revolt. It was a time in Jewish history when they tried to throw off the remains of the Greek Empire before the Romans would come in sometime later. And in the Maccabean Revolt, when the Israelites were trying to exercise some freedom from the remains of the, the empire of Alexander the Great, many of the peoples around them joined with them to try to revolt against the remains of the Greek Empire. The people of Tyre and Sidon, know what they did? They sided with the Greeks. And so these people, the, 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 the people of Syrophoenicia, the people of Tyre and Sidon, not only are they Gentiles, not only have they, have they worshipped, they have a long history of idol worship, they are a people who the people of Galilee and Israel consider to be blood enemies. And that's where Jesus takes his 12 disciples, <laughs> right in the heart of this area. So when we see all this, we get an idea that Jesus may have something on his mind. Now, he may have been trying to get out of Galilee because we understand that tensions were rising in Galilee and there was more opposition to folks in Galilee against Jesus as well. And Jesus actually ends up taking a tour here. He goes up to Sidon and Tyre. He'll, he's going to loop around and come around eventually to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, probably a journey that took several months. These are 
some of the last months Jesus will spend in that part of the world before he ends up going down to Jerusalem and ultimately is crucified. So we're probably, probably talking about the last year or so of Jesus' ministry. And he goes up there perhaps to get away from some of the conflict. But I think he also goes to give the disciples a little bit of a lesson. Because the disciples did not yet, as of yet, understand what Jesus' real mission was. And they did not yet understand that you came to God in faith and with mercy and not by the keeping of rules and rituals. And not by being Jewish. And they were still a little bit confused. So he takes them into Gentile territory for rest and for preparation. Now, we have just read this account in Mark chapter 7. I want to also read for you the account of this in Matthew chapter 15. So in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, the same account. And I want you to keep a finger in both locations because we're going to need both accounts to fully understand what took place. So Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. He answered and said, I was sent only to this lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Now, as we look at these two conversations, these two accounts of the conversations, this is one of those things, that, this is one of those places in the New Testament you're kind of going, wow, is it just me or does Jesus kind of seem rude? <laughs> I mean, this woman comes up and asks him to heal her daughter. And Matthew says that at first he ignored her. And that when he did finally talk to her, he, for all practical purposes, said she was a dog. What in the world is going on here? Well, as we look at this, I want us to understand a couple things. That first of all, while we are dealing with what takes place in this woman's life, that much of what is going on here is not just an encounter with this woman. It is also an object or an object lesson for the disciples. And so there is multiple layers of things going on here. And one of the things that Jesus wants to make clear to his disciples is that a trusting, humble heart, asking for the mercy of God, is what's required to come before him and to be right with God. And so let's look at these two accounts and we'll put them together and see what it is that's going on. First of all, we understand from the Gospel of Matthew that when she first shows up and begins yelling or shouting out, that Jesus ignored her. Now, what we have is we have, they're in this house, they, they found this house, and that uh, you might think the people in Tyre and Sidon area didn't really know who Jesus was, but if we went back to Mark chapter 3, we would find out that when Jesus is making his first attempts to minister in this area of Galilee, that there were people from Tyre and Sidon who showed up to have their, people, have their family members healed. So word had kind of gotten out even in that Gentile area. And so he's in this house with his disciples, and this woman shows up and begins asking for God, for, for Christ to heal her daughter. And Christ's answer is a resounding, 
silence. That's probably not what we're expecting, is it? Of all things we think he might do, silence is probably not what we are first thinking of. But yet, I want us to ask a question. Think about your own walk with the Lord, those of you who have known him for years. Let me ask you this question. Have there ever been times when it felt like your prayers were bouncing off the ceiling and going no further? Have there ever been times in your own life when it seemed like God was silent? When God wasn't answering your prayers? It felt like that God wasn't even hearing your prayers, perhaps, and you thought to yourself, am I talking to just the walls? I think if we're honest this morning, a lot of us have felt that way at some point or another. When it seems like everything we're saying, we're begging, we're pleading, we're praying, and it just seems perhaps that God is not answering. By the way, you're not alone, and we aren't even the first ones to feel that way. King David, Psalm 22, says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. David had moments when he felt like God wasn't there. David had those times when he seemed like he was pleading and crying out before God, and God was simply silent. Job says it even more uh, directly, we, we know the story of Job and how much all he had lost. And, you know, Job loses everything in chapter 1. I mean, it's like boom, boom, boom. Everything happens and everything's gone. And then Job spends the next 30-some-odd chapters of that book asking God, where are you? Why won't you answer me? I have questions for you, God, and I don't hear anything from you. In fact, in Job chapter 30, Job says this, I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. That's, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Job says, God, I'm standing right here. I'm looking at you, and I'm crying out to you, and I'm speaking to you, and I'm calling out to you, and I'm begging you, and you just stare at me and don't say a thing. Job's like, enough already. <laughs> say something. Job feels like God has given him the silent treatment. So Jesus puts her off. He, by the testimony of Mark, ignores her initial pleas to heal her daughter. What's going on? Why would Jesus do this? Why does it sometimes seems that God does this? You've heard the phrase, perhaps, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Have you ever noticed, you know, we're, we're, now in, we're no longer in January, now it's February, so... For those of you who made New Year's resolutions for diets or exercise, how are you doing one month into it? Okay, you don't have to answer out loud. Have you ever noticed that if you do a diet where you're not supposed to eat certain foods, have you noticed that the moment you say to yourself, I'm not eating certain foods, what happens? You want that stuff, right? Now, five minutes before, before you were on that diet, you didn't really want that piece of cake. But now that you can't have that piece of cake, know what you want? That piece of cake. What is it about being told you can't have something that makes you want it? There is, there is this idea that sometimes within us, silence or not having something or being denied something makes us want it all 
the more. It's at the heart of sin, by the way, too. Garden of Eden, Adam, Eve, see that tree over there? Don't you eat it. And what do they want? Yeah, we can, we can joke with Adam and Eve, but we know that we're all the exact same, right? The moment you tell us we can't have something, we want exactly that. This woman comes to Jesus and she pleads for her daughter to be made well. And Jesus ignores her. I saw this analogy this week in talking about this idea. You know, teachers, what's their role in a classroom? What is a teacher's role in a classroom, among many other things? They're primarily there to do what? To teach. And how do teachers teach? Mostly, in a, in a school setting. They speak, right? When is the most common time for teachers to not teach? or not speak during a test. So teachers teach, they speak, they give information, and then when the time for the test comes, it's quiet, right? Now, I don't know if Jesus is only testing this woman or if he's only testing disciples, but there's sometimes it got us silent, I think, because that's the time of, of testing. It's the time of God seeing within us, testing to see what is in our hearts, is what we say we want really what we want? Or are we just looking for something to make us feel better? I think there is an element here that Jesus is, to some degree, testing this woman. I think, though, he's also testing the disciples. And so we see this, there's a method to Jesus' madness, so to speak, here. He is doing something on purpose. And so when this woman initially comes to him, he, he initially doesn't respond. But there's a purpose in what he is doing. And I think we're going to see that as we go, for, as we go forward. Back in Mark, she is persistently coming to him. It finally gets to the point that she is shouting and she is she's very demonstrative out there. She is a desperate woman. She needs and wants her daughter to be healed. And she's kind of making a scene outside this house to the point that the disciples finally tell Jesus, would you shut her up? <laughs> now, I don't think they were saying, saying, they weren't saying shut her up by healing her daughter. They were just saying, make her go away. She's bothering us. She's interfering with us. We're here to try to get some rest, and it's hard to get rest when she's out there yelling at us all the time. Make her go away. Now, if you were one of the disciples, why do you think you're in this part of the country? Well, you probably don't know all that's going on, but we do know this. They probably think they're there to kind of get away from things. They're, they're on a vacation. They're, they're trying to get some rest, and it's hard to get rest when there's someone yelling at you all the time, right? Jesus, make her go away. Now, We've just had a conversation with the, with the disciples and the Jewish leaders in the previous chapter. And we know that they were still in their own minds thinking about what it means to be right with God. And they were doing so in relation to the rituals I've observed, the rules I have kept. And even for the disciples and for the religious leaders of, of Jerusalem, it would have been in who they were ethnically. We are God's chosen people. God came to Abraham. God chose us. He gave us this land. God's kept His promises to us. We're the ones that have the covenant. We're the ones that have the law. We're the ones that have the prophets. 
God chose us, not them. Now, the disciples weren't the first ones to feel this way. We can go back throughout all of Israel's history and we see this idea that we are God's chosen people and we're special and we're better than everyone else. In fact, we see the word dogs come up here in just a few moments. We do understand that in Jesus' day, the Jews generally referred to Gentiles. And by the way, that's most of us, probably all of us in this room. That their word for us is the word dog. Now, you and I think of dogs, and we think of little lap dogs and pets and dogs that sit and roll over and all those things. For them, dogs are mangy scavengers for the most part. It's an insult. And so these disciples, quite frankly, are looking at this woman as little more than a yapping dog that annoys them. And when they tell Jesus to shut her up, that's what they're thinking. I mean, one of the very first times um, my youth pastor, when I was in junior high, he wanted to take... He wanted to take some of the youth on visits with him. So he would take us sometimes on Saturdays when we were not in school, and he would take us on Saturdays to go visit prospects and to go visit other teenagers who might be coming to church. I remember one of the first ones that my youth pastor Rod took me on. And we, we walk in, we, we, we get out there, and, and there are, uh, inside this fenced area around this yard, kind of out in the country, there are three dogs on that front porch. Small, medium large. One thing I learned about making visits is actually not a lot of times, it's not really the big dog. The large, you know what the large dog did when we came in that fence? Now the medium-sized dog, he got up. He kind of paced a little bit, but he at least got up. He was like, he's on alert. Now you know what that little small dog did? That thing charged. It got up and it yipped, this annoying, high-pitched yip that makes you want to do one thing. See how far that thing will go when you kick it. Rod, hold up your, hold up your hands right there. I'm going to see if I can launch that thing and make it good. I didn't kick the dog, by the way. <laughs> the disciples are annoyed. And they see in her, they, don't almost, they almost don't even look at her as somebody worth their time or attention. They almost don't even see her as a person. She's a Canaanite. She's an enemy. On top of that, obviously we're in a different world then than we are now. They see her as a woman at the bottom of the social food chain. So she's got, in every, in every box that can be checked, she's got every checked box against her for the disciples in the first century. And on top of that, it wasn't even a son to be healed. It was another woman. It was a daughter. So there's nothing in their mindset that makes this woman really worth paying attention to. She's an enemy. She's a pagan. She's unclean. And she's annoying them. See, among other things, they've still yet to figure out what makes someone right before God. They think they're the place of privilege because they're Jews because they're disciples of Jesus. They think they're special and that she's not. So Jesus, get rid of her. Now Jesus does say in the Gospel of Matthew, he turns to his disciples and says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. 
Now, you know what the disciples probably would have responded to that? Oh, yeah, you're right. That was like red meat. By the way, I think Jesus is baiting his disciples. <laughs> I think he's setting them up. I think the master teacher is reeling in his 12 disciples before he just hammers them upside the head. He's getting ready to do it. So he says things like, oh, I'm only sent to the people of lost, lost, lost people of Israel. And they're all going, yeah, tell her, that's another reason to tell her to go away. You, you say it, you say it, Jesus. We're, we're right behind you. She keeps on, she keeps on speaking. And much like Jonah didn't want to go to the people of Nineveh, the disciples don't want to have anything to do with this lady. Finally, she approaches, she bows down in worship. She calls him Messiah. She calls him Son of David. She refers to him as the King. This lady's got some information. She knows something about who Jesus is. And she pleads. And Jesus says this little parable, if you will. It's not proper for the dogs to be fed the bread that should go to the children. In other words, the idea would be you don't feed the dogs the food for the kids, for the family. Now, man, that's, that's hard. Why would Jesus say that to someone who's coming to him in faith? Because for all practical purposes, what he just, he just did, his little allegory, his little parable there, the people of Israel are the children, God's activity is the bread, and she is the dog. And he just said, it is not appropriate for me to deal with you, to give you the choice of God's work, while the people of Israel still haven't gotten their, theirs yet. It's not appropriate to go to the dogs. Now that is, it's just a hard thing to hear. I, I, when I first looked at this this week, I, it occurred to me that you know, one of the things in the Scriptures is that as we read all these things, sometimes the, the tone of voice or the attitude behind what we're seeing is not always evident. Like we just see the words. And sometimes things can be said with an attitude or if you were to witness something being said in person, it might sound different in person than it does just written down on the, on the page. And my first thought maybe was, well, maybe what Jesus is doing here is he's got kind of a twinkle in his eye. Maybe he's using a little bit of satire or sarcasm where he and the woman are in on it and the disciples are clueless. So my first thought perhaps was a little bit, maybe that Jesus sees what's going on in this woman's life. He knows who she is. He knows what's going on. And he's got kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing going on. He's going, you know, they say it's not really proper to give bread to the dogs while you're still children. But he says it kind of with a twinkle in his eye and a, and a smile on his face like, you know where we're going with this, right, lady? And she gets it. And she, she has that great response that she has. So my first thought was that maybe Jesus was having a little fun with her. She was in on a joke. The disciples were clueless. That was my first idea. And as I read, I found out I wasn't the only person to ever think of that idea. But as I began to read this with Matthew, and I saw that he was ignoring her, I went, boy, that's, that's kind of hard to really justify that. So I think what I've come to the conclusion is, I think Jesus actually is intentionally ignoring her, and I think he even intentionally says something to her that you and I might think of as, whoa, that's harsh. 
But I think there's something going on here. And I, I think that much as God used Job to teach us even today a lesson that God or that Christ in his conversation with this woman, as hard as it may seem, he's doing so not just for her benefit. There's something here for her, but he's doing it for the benefit of his disciples, that she is actually, in some respects, a lesson for them. So he, he tells her this statement. And what's interesting is you and I would look at this statement and go, man, that's kind of offensive. That's, that's rude. That's harsh. But look at her response. Does she seem to be offended? He, he, he essentially calls her dog. And she basically says, yeah. Yes. That's who I am. But Lord, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall off the table. Now, what is the point of all this? This lady has essentially understood that coming to God, she has nothing to offer. Jesus says, it's not appropriate to give it to dogs. And she basically says, yeah, you're right. That's where I'm at. I have no I have not earned anything. I don't have any reason for you to do anything. There's nothing I can give you on my resume that qualifies me for this miracle. There's nothing I can give you that would buy off this miracle. There is nothing in my life, there's nothing I possess, there's nothing about who I am that Jesus makes me worthy of your attention. Nothing. You're right. All I got is hope that you'll let me have some crumbs. That you'll take some mercy on me, that you'll be gracious to me, because I don't deserve, I haven't earned a single thing. That's essentially what she's saying. It's essentially what she's acknowledging. And what's ironic about this is, where are the disciples? Where are these 12 men who are going to be used by Christ to found the church, who have been hanging around with Him for a couple of years now? Do they have an understanding of how to be right with God yet? The answer is, no! They've seen Christ do all these incredible things, and yet, <coughs> excuse me, and yet they still think that because they're Jewish, because they're men, because they grew up knowing the Torah, that they know how to wash their hands and eat the right foods, they still think that's what makes them okay with God. And this woman says, I ain't got nothing. All I have is your willingness to be merciful. Guess who was in the better place with God at the end of this conversation? It was her. This, it brings to mind, if you remember the, the account of the two men in the temple praying, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector, who is considered by the Jews to be the bottom of the bottom of sinners. And the tax collector goes before God in the temple and prays, I am a sinner, God forgive me, have mercy on my soul. Meanwhile, the Pharisees over there going, God, I thank you, I'm not like that guy. This woman and that tax collector are in the same boat. They have realized that they got nothing before God, that they are completely relying upon His mercy. The disciples haven't quite caught that just yet. And so I think part of what's going on here is that Jesus is giving this woman and as he's testing her, as he's putting his berries up in front of her, he's giving her the ability to demonstrate before the disciples what true repentance, what true humility, what true brokenness looks like. 
And to demonstrate that, he has to kind of put her through the ringer. So that's what he does. You remember, remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. This great uh, message that Christ gives on the side of the hill. The very first of the Beatitudes, the very first of the Sermon on the Mount that we have recorded, Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What's, what does it mean to be poor? It means you got nothing, right? It means you don't have any resources. It means you don't have the ability to get what you want or what you need. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who realize that before God, you have nothing. You cannot come to God and say, look at my great talent. Look at my great intelligence. Look at my great birthright. Look at my great DNA. You can't come and bring any of that before God and earn anything. It's only those who come before God and realize that they are broken and have nothing. Those are the ones who see the kingdom of heaven. And in Mark chapter 7, Matthew chapter 15, we are seeing that demonstrated in the life of this woman. As Jesus gives her the ability, as he challenges her, he gives her the ability to, to show that she understands she has nothing. So that the disciples will also figure out that it's not about what you have, it's not about what you come from, it's that you come before God and admit you have nothing. Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks of his great history as a Pharisee and his history. He was born in the right tribe, he had kept all the rules. Paul says, I was a Jew of Jews, I was the top of the line, I had it all. And he says, I've traded it all in. In fact, he says, I consider that rubbish. It's garbage. It's the stuff, you know, when you pour out leftovers, you pour out food in your garbage can, you let it sit there for a couple days, what does it smell like? You don't want it in the house? That's what the word that, that Paul is using there. And Paul is saying, all the stuff I relied upon, all my good works, all my good deeds, all the best I had to offer, all the qualifications I could give to God, I realize now that that's like the garbage that stinks up the house that you want to throw out. He said, I traded that all in so that I would have the righteousness that comes from Christ. In other words, Paul had become broken and humble like this woman. So this conversation that we see between Jesus and the woman, while it appears to be harsh, it's Jesus demonstrating through this conversation to her and to the disciples about what it really means to come before God as a broken person in faith asking for mercy. Now, that's part of what's going on here. But there's part two of this, and that is this. And we're just about done. Jesus wants the disciples to, to know that their, their mission is not limited to the nation of Israel. I started off with a story a while ago about my friend who witnessed to this guy in the hospital. Two men that looked opposite of each other who come from different backgrounds and yet God put them together so that someone might come to Christ. This woman comes from a background and you couldn't be more opposite of the disciples. And yet God will put them together. The truth is, when God called Israel, 
even all the way dating back to Abraham. Their role was never to keep the work of God to themselves. Their role was to be the tool, the means by which God made his salvation known to the world. They took God's, they, they took the chosenness, if you will, that God gave them. And instead of using it for the means by, to which God had called them, they kept it to themselves. And they sat inside their own borders and they pulled Jonah's. They didn't want to go to the rest of the world. So I think part of what's going on here is that Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples that they were never meant and never would be meant to keep this to themselves. That in fact, God was going to call them ultimately to the utter ends of the earth and to tell the gospel and to share the bread, if you will, the crumbs, to people who were utterly different than they were. And they did. And it wasn't easy for them. We understand that the Apostle Peter is probably the individual source for many of these stories. The Gospel of John presents God. John as one of the disciples. It's his recollection of those events. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew is the Apostle Matthew's recollection. The Gospel of Mark was, in many ways, Peter telling John Mark what to write down. And this is what God, this is what Jesus said, this is what we experienced. And we understand that even though Mark says in this passage in chapter 7 earlier that Jesus was declaring all foods clean and the disciples were, that the Gentiles were going to be brought into the family, Peter still struggled with this. In the book of Acts, Peter's preaching and God sends him to a Roman by the name of Cornelius. You may remember that God had to give, vision, give a vision to Peter that all foods were clean and that God was going to work in the Gentiles because Peter was still, even at that point in time, resistant to the idea. Even sometime later, Peter finds himself in the city of Antioch, the church that sent out Paul. And, and Peter's having a meal with the people of that church, but he will only sit down and eat with the Jews because he thinks eating with the Gentile Christians will make him unclean. If you remember the story, Paul shows up and just chews Peter out. Peter, what are you doing? Peter, leader of the disciples, decades after the events of Mark chapter 7, will still struggle with this idea that God, has working, God is working with people who are different than he is. Guess what? Peter is not the only one. For us this morning, I think there's two things for us here. One is this. Jesus is telling us the same thing he's telling the disciples. It's not how many church services you go to. It's not how much money you put into an offering plate. It's not how well-intentioned you are doing charity work or good deeds. None of that in the end is what makes you a believer or gives you the righteousness of Christ. It is coming before our God in humility and brokenness and saying, I've got nothing except your mercy. That's what leads to being right with God. And two, if we are in that place where we have in fact done that, that we have received God's mercy, we have received His salvation, the task is now this. Don't be comfortable and just talk to people like you. That God may in fact take you to people wholly unlike you. Maybe they're in China. Maybe they're in Africa. 
Maybe they're in Russellville. <laughs> Maybe they're across the street. You don't have to look hard to find people who are not like you, who are different than you. Even over the last couple of weeks, it seems there's an overwhelming evidence of a world that has just gone insane. Embracing evil. That's where this woman was from. She was from a culture that had embraced evil. That called wrong right and the right wrong. And yet, Christ went to them. And I believe that woman came to faith with what she knew. Who knows where God will send us as a church or as individuals?